0: One of the great things is that I've been able to connect with people who have been able to pursue their passion in Broadway and musicals and movies and in television shows. And everyone's path to get there is a little bit different. So I asked Joe Teddy if he would share his story about how he got cast on Discovery Channel's hit show, Dual Survival. So here's Joe's story from special ops to TV show star. Hey, thanks for connecting with me here, man. Obviously, I've been following you since the dual survival days, which was awesome. God rest the soul of the show, man. I wish we were still on, but I still catch the reruns. It was awesome to see you there and have you do that. But obviously, there was a lot that happened before that. What's your background in terms of the Joe Teddy story of going from wherever you came from up to, obviously, on a path to the military, which kind of led to the show? What got you into military service to begin with?
1: Yeah, so actually, when I was around eight I was really fascinated by the Marine Corps commercials. So Mm. huge, proud, the Marines. So I was always intrigued with that as a young man. And so that was my focus. I wanted to go in the Marines, but then specifically, I wanted to be a recon Marine. And I used to get like Soldier Fortune magazines and always be like pictures of recon guys and SEAL team guys and stuff. So anyway, all through junior high school, I trained. It's all in my book too, man. I used to train and I'd sneak into this Union Railroad place down the road from my house, and I'd sneak around at night, and I was like playing wannabe commando. And then 10 days after I graduated high school, I went straight to Marine Corps boot camp and went from Marine Corps boot camp. I got meritors and promoted in boot camp, went straight to infantry school, was honor graduate in infantry school, got meritors and promoted to Lance Corporal. And then while I was there, they had a recruiting team from Second Force Recon, Come down and they're like, hey, who's gonna graduate? Hey, you want to try out? And then they brought like ten guys over. And then so I went straight to second force, and that was a real kick in the face. I get there and the first thing you do is you go through what they call their indoc test. Then this is back in the day. You gotta remember, this is in '83, right? I don't want to talk about now, but back then they had the indoc test, and it was like a way to just wash guys out immediately. And it was like three or I can't remember. It's like three or four days. And they just keep you up all day, all night, all day, all night, just constant PT until you quit. And then after it's done, then you go into what was called the RIP platoon, recon and doctorization program. And so you're basically waiting for your ARS class or amphib recon class to form up, which is kind of like buds for the seals. Amphib recon school is the Marine Corps version to get your 0321 MOS, which at that time was reconnaissance marine Timing sucked. So I go through, I get, I do the in-doc test and I was in the RIP platoon for four months. It was literally seven days a week. I remember walking to the chow hall and then walking across this grassy area and all is drop! And you're out there and you're out there for hours until somebody tells you to get up. And you're just constantly running to the paraloft and grabbing a parachute and running to the scuba locker and grabbing, you're just smoking there for four months. And then my ARS class formed up and the timing again, kicked me right in the face. I was in a winter class. So I started ARS in September. And at that time, it was at a place called Fort Story, Virginia. It was literally this tiny little Spartan compound on the beach on the Chesapeake Bay. And it was like a few Quonset huts, some pull-up bars, PT logs, some IBS boats, a huge beach and water. And to be honest with you, that's about all you need to torture people and to see who wants to be there. And it was very Spartan. It was terrible because swimming in the Chesapeake Bay in the winter, man, I remember them saying the water was like 51 degrees, 52 degrees. We had Farmer John's, which was basically just like no sleeves, no legs, wetsuits with a hoodie, and then BDU's. And we would swim twice a day, morning and night with a rucksack. The first two weeks, he didn't. But like after that, you swam with a rucksack on a tow line. So of course, it's floating in the water like an anchor. You got your two-core canteens holding it up. And anyway, you're swimming in buddy teams. And the swims, they started out like 1,000 meters. And then our longest swim, I think, was four miles. You basically swam out 100 yards all the way down the beach. And, of course, when you get out of the water, the instructors were sitting there, lounge chairs with all their worries on, a fire, drinking coffee. And you're getting out of the water, and you're just like hypothermic. And they are like, you want something to drink? I'll give it to you if you're, you want to quit. And Then you got to put the rucksack on and run back to the starting line. And your legs are already rubber. But anyway, brutal school. And let I me mean say this, and I've said this publicly, and I'm going to say it again. I've been asked this question. What was the hardest training, physical training, have you ever been through, by far, recon school, 1983, Fort Story, winter class? Yeah, you couldn't pay me a million dollars to do that again. But yeah, it was brutal. And what was crazy is that the Marine Corps at the time, I got to remember, this is 83. They didn't have MARSOC. Now they got MARSAC, Marine Special Operations Command, which is part of SOCOM. Back then they didn't. They had 1st Recon Battalion, 2nd Recon Battalion, 3rd Recon Battalion, which was in Okinawa, 2nd was in Lejeune, and then at, at the beach, and then 1st was in California. They had one force recon company. One. So out of, let me think, in 83, there was about 200,000 Marines in the Marines. There was one force recon company, like 80 guys. That's it. I got to tell you, the most physically fit guys I have ever met, and I'm going to say it again, was the guys at Force Recon, without a doubt. And I've trained with, I was a Green Bray. I trained with Rangers, SEALs, Delta, SEAL Team 6, the SAS, Task Force 1, blah blah. these guys, they were crazy. There were dudes, no lie, the Marine Corps PT test, three events. It was a three-mile run, pull-ups, and sit-ups. There were guys doing the entire test in 18 minutes. No lie. That means you were doing the three mile run and 20 pull-ups and 80 sit-ups in under 18 minutes. I wasn't one of them. Now you had to do a 300 or you were gone, but that means you're doing a three mile run under 18 minutes. That's yeah. That's sub six minute miles. That's straight up dude. But yeah, those guys were cyborgs. It was crazy. I've never seen anything in my life. We used to do company formation runs to Onslow beach and back 14 miles seven miles down, seven miles back through the tank trails, deep sand, all the way down this long road. We'd get to the beach, get in the water, everybody just gets smoked and then run all the way back. Like it was nothing. Yeah. Crazy.
0: Yeah. Just, just the time and the feet and the pace, even if you're just in good shape, carry nothing. Uh, oh, that's no. crazy.
1: Yeah. Good shape. It was crazy. Cause like in the winter we would do PT. I swear to God, dude, winter time. I remember cars dri- driving by the barracks. It was in French Creek it was uh, a barracks that had radio battalion on one side and second force. It was a three-story barracks. and split in the middle. And we'd got there in the winter with snow on the ground, PTN, and green t-shirts, UDT t and jungle boots. And it was snowing on the ground. It was really, it really was, it was a kick in the face for me. Wow, this is no joke. You asked for it, you got it. But here I am. But to this day, with all the schools, I've been to 30 schools, and I would have to say that those guys are in the best shape. And now, of course, you got MARSOC. And that's why I left the Marines is because at the time I was so disenchanted. It's, you've got these guys who jump scuba qualified. Some guys were Halo, Ranger School, all, all this great talent. It wasn't getting used. It wasn't getting used. And I just got disenchanted. So I got out and I, I'll, I'll always be a Marine. And that's where, where my career started. But and then of course I got out, long story, moved to Vegas, became a stockbroker. I tried that for five years. I was mildly successful. I worked for Bear Stearns. And then I still had that In the back of my head, because I was still a young man, I got the Marines at 21. I was in from 17 to 21, and I was a stockbroker. And then I was a stockbroker for five years, but I still had that. I got to do more. So I went back in SF, went to selection, Q course, Halo school, blah, blah. And uh, because I was already dive qualified. And so I just got back in SF. I did that. Still, nothing was going on. Desert Storm came and went. We never even got activated. And then right when I was getting ready to ETS, I, I get an invite from a A government organization, and they basically said, hey, you referred to us by so-and-so, and and, uh, would you like to try out? And uh, long story short, I I did. It was a very long process. I didn't have the proper security clearance. I only had secret clearance. You had to have a top-secret SCI and a polygraph. And I was told, hey, don't get so excited because 50% of the guys don't even make the polygraph. And most of the guys that were being recruited statistically were from the tier one units from Delta and SIL team six. They were actually guys that were getting out. They were picking them up and 50% of those guys would be past the polygraph. That's real world. And then that was just one part. Then board and then my class formed up basically like an OTC class, which Delta has an OTC. This particular unit had an OTC course too, was six months and four of us graduated for. But yeah, I, uh, I'm not going to comment who I worked for, but it was a great experience. I never thought in a, in, a, in a million years I would ever be able to do what that particular organization did because of the nature of the mission. And so even special op- military special operations units, even the tier one units can't do certain missions because of the legalities. Let's just say that. Because of the legalities of it. So those type of missions are given to a particular government asset and those guys do it. So yeah, it was a great experience. I, I had a huge chip on my shoulder when I got there because I was around a bunch of pipe hitters that were former Delta guys, been in Somalia and all these highly experienced shooters. And so all it did, man, is it raised my game big time. And like the big thing there was shooting right? And it wasn't a bad shooter by any stretch of imagination with an M4. But what really separates the men from the boys when it comes to combat marksmanship is pistol. And even in regular, I'll say vanilla soft units like special forces and steel teams, yeah, you shoot pistol. Sure. Of course. But certainly not to the level that you had to be there. The standards are so much higher. And I was actually worried. I wasn't worried about the carbine part, but the pistol, I was like, wow, I know these guys are like the best combat pistol shooters in the world. But i tell you, man, there was a couple guys, I would love to mention their names, but I can't. They took me under their wing and they really pleased me up, man. I was getting my draw time like under a second and a half and second one 1.4, where my draw time when I was training all the time was under a second. So I could draw from the holster one round on the target at seven meters under a second. And that, I'm told that's pretty fast. And, but those were the kind of guys I was around. So a couple of the dudes were really cool and they really, they really helped me out. And again, it's all about that performance stuff. And I remember one day this guy, we were on the range and he was one of the instructors. He was an older cat and he comes up to me. So Joe, you think you're good enough to be here? I'm like, yes, sir. I think I'm good enough. And guess what? We don't need good. We need great. And I was like, wow. Okay. I'm just going to shut up. And I'll be honest with you, dude, I don't even know, even being there, how many operators they had, I can guess, because the way the unit rotated, and I don't want to get into the details of it, but the way guys rotated in and out of being downrange, I can estimate there's so many guys here, and so many guys here, and so many guys here, more than likely it's about this many, very small. Um, let me just say, I worked with SEAL Team 6 and Delta on, and in, in when I was in Iraq with Delta, and then SEAL Team 6 in Afghanistan, when they split the two operational areas. And so I don't know how many guys are in each squadron and put it this way, the unit I was in was smaller than one of their squadrons. And there's like in Delta, you have A, B, C, D, who knows, or maybe EFG now, but then Sil team six has blue squadron and red squadron and gold squadron and black squadron. And again, they may have a purple squadron, but at that time it was smaller than one of their squadrons. That's how small it was.
0: But then what happens now? So now you're doing that. And at some point you end up on dual survival. So what goes on? How does this all come to be?
1: Yeah, bro, you can't even make this up. And I've told this story before. I was still in that particular unit at the time. And I was kind of like on hiatus. I had been on a really long deployment. Normally our deployments were very sh- three months, but we were out every night. So you, you, your operational tempo is sh- every night. But I extended one month. So I was like on a four-month deployment and I came back and I basically told him like, I need to decompress for a while. They're like, fine. And so I actually went out to the desert. <clears throat> a buddy of mine called me and said, hey, you want to come help me train Marsock? They're going to do a pre-deployment training out in the desert, out in California. And you want to come help? I'm like, yeah. So I went and helped him. And while I was there, another friend of mine calls me and he's like, dude, have you seen this email that's going around the community and what he meant by the community was this special operations community. And I said, No, what is it? And he says, Let me send it to you. So he says it to me. And basically, it was very ambiguous. It said, Wanted special forces type individual for reality TV show, send headshot and resume. That's what it said. So it's all said. I'm like, Dude, it went and one or not the other. And so he keeps bugging me and bugging me. And I'm like, God dang, just to shut you up, I'm going to do it. So I did. And I like picked this totally, I didn't even care. I picked this picture. It was out of focus. I don't even remember what picture it was. It was a picture of me in Afghanistan or something. Anyway, and I sent my resume and I sent it in. I just blew it off. Because you got to remember, I was in a unit that if you even took a picture and somebody saw it, they'd be like, come here, need that film. You know what I mean? So it wasn't even on my radar. And so I turned my stuff in and three weeks later or I get this phone call from this guy. He's like, Hey, my name's Stone. I'm a talent rep for Discovery and we got your stuff really interesting, but don't get your hopes up. We've got, I think that's an 1800 <laughs> people turning their stuff, right? I'm like, okay, great. Nice. Have a nice day. So I get a call like a week later with the same guy saying, Oh, Hey, you're down to the 35. I can't remember. And I kind of like just blew it off. I wasn't even listening to him. Then I get a call a week later from a lady and she's, you're down to the top five and we want to fly you out to Arizona to do a chemistry test with the other host. I'm like, what's a chemistry test? Oh, you're just going to interface with them and we're going to video you and see how you guys interact. And I'm like, oh, okay. And it was starting to get real, but it's still just like national TV. I didn't even know what show it was. I asked, I said, what show is this? They wouldn't even <laughs> tell me. They wouldn't even tell me. And so I'm like, all right, whatever. So a few days later, they fly me out to Arizona right after I get off the phone. Like the next day, I got sick as a dog. I got like the flu or something, and I'm running at both ends. So I fly out to Arizona. They pick me up. They bring me to this hotel. They sequester me. They're like, don't leave your room. We'll bring you food. Don't walk around. I'm like, what? wow, this is like where it came from, <laughs> right? Hiding you out and stuff. And So uh, that morning, they pick me up in this white van. They take me out in the desert. And I see like they have all these tents, like there's three tents over here and in mine. And in other words, like five of them. And I could see a guy in each of them, but too far away to talk. So I see one guy, somebody walk over and they walk him over this hill and he was gone for about a half an hour and then he comes back. And then this guy walks up to me and he was the executive producer. And he's like, look, here's all we need you to do. You're going to walk down this trail. You're going to go over this hill. And when you go over the hill, you're going to see a guy standing there. Just pick up a conversation with him. And I'm like, what do you want me to talk about? He's like, anything just start talking to him. That's okay. And he's ignore everything else. How hard is that? So I walk over this hill and the first thing I see is a bunch of vehicles and tents and cameras. I'm like, oh, wow, this is real. And then I looked on this trail and I see Cody Lundeen standing there. And what was funny is I used to watch the show. I watched Dual Survival. Dave Canterbury was on the show and I was a huge fan of Dave. See, he was a former military guy. Knows his stuff cold. Great personality. Very aggressive. Alpha male. So I watched it, and first thing I thought is like, "What happened? They killed Dave." <laughs> I was like, "What happened to Dave?" Super dangerous you know? so, out there, man. So anyway, I walked down there, and I knew Cody walked on barefoot. So I basically, the first words out of my mouth was like, "Let me see the bottom of your feet." And he just picked up his foot. And he goes, "It's really nothing special." And I like touched the bottom of his feet and stuff. And so we just started talking. And what I was told later is that he was basically told to start an argument, like. Cause some drama, push these people's buttons because Cody, like Matt Graham, they, they are primitive skills experts. I'm not, I'm pretty damn good at it now but, because i have hung around those guys, but that's not my thing. I'm not into rubbing sticks together. It's called a lighter. You know? So, so Cody, he starts pushing my buttons and what makes you think you can do this? And I'm like, wow. Like, so what I found out was after about 10, 15 minutes the head guys, that's the dude right there. Because I found out that the other, dude was like a more dude. And this guy was mad. Like, I knew they weren't going to pick him. He must have been seven foot tall. He was the biggest man I ever saw in my life. I'm like, they ain't picking him. And there was, like, two guys from SEAL Team 6 and I think a guy from Delta. I can't remember, but it was, like, one one or the other. It was two of one or one of the other. So anyway, and me. And I was told that when Cody pulled this with these guys, they just, like, they didn't know what to say to him Because, yeah, Cody is an expert on primitive skills survival. There's no doubt about it. And he just hammered the – and Cody's a type A guy, and – he just basically put him in their place and they didn't know how to respond. And I was just like, Hey dude, you know what? I, I, I can hang with you. I might not be able to do what you do, but I don't want to do what you do. I want to get the heck out of here. And that was the whole idea of the show. My partners were primitive skills guys. They wanted to stay in camp and do all that fun stuff. And I'm like, I want to get back. <laughs> I like my couch and, and I like my hot food and I like to have a glass of wine with dinner and watch TV. But so that was the yin and yang of the show. If there had been two of me on the show, it would have been boring or, two primitive skills guys. That was the whole crux of the show. They want to do A, I want to do B. I show you how to do B. They show you how to do A. And at the end of the day, the viewer basically says, I think Joe's crap. I would never do that. I'd do what Matt did or vice versa. Yeah. And that's how I got on. And then, oh, so let me ask. I didn't even know they picked me. So after I'm all done, they walk me back to my tent. The guy goes, thank you for coming. We appreciate it. And I'm like, oh, that's that. Like they, I thought they would just tell you right there, that they didn't, that they knew I was the guy, but they didn't tell me. Nine days later, I'm driving down the road in my car and my phone rings. I'm not joking. And I looked down and it was a 516 area code. And I'm like, 516, who's calling me? I think it's like New York or something. And I'm like, why is somebody called? So I go, hello. And this guy, real serious voice goes, is this Joe Trey? I'm like, yes, sir. He's my name. And so I'm an attorney. And I'm like, click. I hung up the phone. I'm like, why is an attorney calling me? Like, he ain't telling me I won the lottery. And then I hung up. So my phone rings again and I look down and it's the same number. Peter, this is where I tell people, this is where your life could change like this. I was told if I didn't answer, they were calling the next guy. There was they weren't even gonna wait for me. So I picked up the phone, I go, hello. And this guy says, I think we got disconnected. And I said, No, I hung up on you. What do you want? So he goes. Is this Joe, Ta- did you just do a chemistry test with Cody Lundin for dual survival? And I said, yeah, He's said, you want the effing job or not? Whoa. So I remember I lived in Albemarle, North Carolina at the time. And I was right from this gas station. I remember I pulled in I was so like, what? And I pulled in, I got out of the car and I said, hold on a second. And I, I remember vividly going, your whole life is going to change. You're in the blackest of black. And now you're going to be in the whitest of white. You could not literally be farther apart. I went from being in a super sensitive secret unit where you were the gray man to being on a national TV show. You can't even make it up. So I don't know what made me say yes. I guess it was just a challenge of it. But I said, you're on. And he said, hey, congratulations. You're going to be get some phone calls from the president of the company. And he said, hey, do you have an attorney? Do you have a CPA? I'm like, whoa, slow up. I'm like, what? And yeah, I lawyered up and I got a CPA because I had a contract, a 56 page contract. Anyway, yeah, that's how it happened. Literally, to shut a friend of mine up. Can't even make it up, dude.
0: Gotta give him a good gift, man. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy because I think my my assumption as a viewer would have been like, hey, you would be someone doing survival stuff because I think Dave Canterbury was doing some YouTube stuff before some survival. Things. Oh, yeah. He was big time on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. But really, you just came from the military side of it completely bringing those survival skills to that show. So oh, it's also interesting. You talked about some of the frustration at how Cody was supposed to push your buttons a little bit. And I wanted to ask you about that because I seem to detect what I will say is what seemed like more frustration with Cody than with Matt later and there seem to be a lot of really genuine conflict moments. Is that legit? Uh, to the point where there's that one scene where I think Cody's just dropping stuff in the water, man. Like your gear and shit like that, right? Yeah.
1: Remember, TV, shows like Dual Survival, that was a big hit for Discovery. Big show. Shows like that, people love to see conflict. That makes TV. When people argue and they can't deconflict their problems and your butt heads. We'll tell you this. Yeah, like the scenes where you saw Cody and I arguing. None of it was staged. It wasn't like getting into an argument with Cody. It just happened when it naturally happened. And you got to remember when you're shooting a show like that, dude, you're getting tired. As the days go on, you get tired, your feet are getting sore. I've had hypothermia 16, no joke, 16 times. 16 times from that. I'd never had in the military (laughs) from that show. So, yeah, so like the arguments are raw, they're real, but they're over points that people from the viewing audience can relate to. I don't want to stay here. And this is why. For instance, when Cody and I were in Africa, Cody wanted to stay in a tree and he did. And then, so I stayed on the ground in this bush. I can't remember the name of it. It had giant thorns on it. So I like pulled out a spot and I put elephant crap all around me to scent myself. And I told Cody, you're up there and your scent's going to travel and lions are going to smell it and they can climb the tree. Then he's here on the ground and a rhino and an elephant. So. It wasn't like he was right or wrong or I was right or wrong. It was giving the viewer an opportunity to pick a side. You know what I mean? And that's what it was all about. And sometimes Cody was right and sometimes I was right. But my frustrations with Cody was the fact that he was barefoot. And yes, to answer a question, yes, he went barefoot everywhere. When he got on planes, he would throw down a pair of sandals. But that was his lifestyle, right? That's the way Cody lives. And I will tell you guys like Matt and Cody, they are legitimate. They live that lifestyle straight up. Cody's got a place, I think it's in Arizona that's faces solar south and he built it and he collects his own water. Like he lives that lifestyle, which is unique. And so does Matt. The thing about Matt was Matt, he did wear sandals. He never went barefoot, but he did wear sandals. But Matt was a world-class athlete, which a lot of people don't know. He ran like this trail in California. I can't remember what it's called, but it was like a thousand miles. Like he did it in a certain the guy was an ex- exceptional runner, an exceptional swimmer, an exceptional climber. So we could do things that made the show sexy. So that was really fun because it gave me a chance to show my physical prowess too because I pride myself on that. But Matt was an exceptional athlete. And so I would actually say world-class. And so it made the show a lot more fun for me. And Matt, of course, is a, an expert in primitive skills and two different people. You just got to understand, mm. Cody's not Matt. Matt wasn't Cody. You know, It was tough to argue with Matt because Matt was a very humble guy. He he wasn't like, hey, I'm an expert at anything. And it was tough to argue with him. But I got prodded a few times by the, uh, the executive producer, uh, Mr. Nichelle, who was the executive producer from Original Media. He was like the head honcho. He was the one to put the shows together. He's like, dude, you got to mix it up a little bit. All right. And I'm like, it's hard. He's, I know Matt's a nice guy, but you, you got to mix it up. I'm like, so we got into a few scraps, but Matt's—he was a consummate professional. And I got to tell you, between between Cody and Matt, my primitive skill game when I got there—I'll be totally honest—from one to ten was probably a five. Which SF guys and seals—they're not survival. If you're rubbing sticks, it's a school. If you're rubbing sticks together, you're, really you really—you should die for being so stupid. You have a lighter, but I would honestly tell you, after working with both of those individuals. I would say my primitive skill game is probably around an eight right now. Matt and Cody are tens, and I'm not there, and I'm not a nine, but I'm a strong eight. Only because I sat there and watched these guys and talked to them and practiced. And how did you do that? And you didn't see any of this stuff because it's all behind the scenes. But I picked these guys' brains, and they were nice enough to share their knowledge with me. And uh, so it took my survival skills from middle-of-the-road SF guy, or a SEAL or whatever MARSOC guy to there, because you don't practice that stuff. You're, you're doing CQB and room clearing and shooting and skydiving and all sco- that. You know, if you're out there rubbing sticks, that's not even a skill set you should be thinking about. But yeah, it was a unique experience, man, very unique.
0: Yeah, the fire start- starting stuff to me is the one that just blows my mind, because in Boy Scouts, man, I don't know how many times I've tried it, but I don't know that I've ever had a successful fire start using anything without ignition.
1: Dude, here's the deal. Every, this is, here's the, the thing that everybody, oh, just rub two dry sticks together. Look, Matt one day was talking to me about this. And he's like, dude, you, there's so many factors. The ambient air temperature, right? Altitude, the density of the wood. Like he had this stuff down cold. And Cody did too, to the tiny little nuances. Just because you have two dry and some wood won't even get hot enough to make that little ember. Um, don't quote me on this, but I believe it was like 800 degrees. I think you had to get the wood up to 800 degrees to make that little cherry. And then you take that cherry and you put it in your tinder bundle. Some wood just won't get that hot. It just won't because of the density of the wood and the grain of the wood. And the, That's what those guys brought to the table. They had it down cold. And I knew nothing. No one ever told me about that stuff. Oh, the grain of the wood and the density of the wood. Like, it was just like, here's two sticks right up together. Good luck. And then the creativity of how they would make it, whether it's using a bow drill. I remember Cody one time made this crazy-ass contraption. I don't even remember what it was. I think it was called a fire drill or something. Anyway, it was amazing. You pushed on this thing, and it was spinning. And it had these two handles, and he did it with 550 cord and it was like Zzz! And Matt did the same thing. He has some really creative ways. Instead, of just rubbing sticks together, the producer would say, look, how do you sex this up a little bit to give the viewer a different look? And Matt would sit there and go, I got it. And it was amazing, dude, to watch that. I was always amazed watching that happen because I could do it. Not as good as them. But whenever I did it, I was just like, wow, that's mine was more MacGyver stuff. I don't know if you saw the one in Romania where we made that balloon. I made that balloon and we filled it full of hot air and it floated away and had a note on it. Like I was all little MacGyver stuff, just trying to think about what you can do. But I would say 80% the primitive skills stuff that actually needed to be demonstrated was mostly on their shoulders. I'd make a fire using a lens. I used a light bulb one time. I cracked it open and used a filament and gum wrapper and a battery, stuff like that. But the primitive stuff, that's what they were on the show for. I was on the show as a spec ops guy, you know, that mindset go. And to this day, I would tell people my personal opinion. I'm just telling you what I would do if I was caught in a real-world survival situation, I would pick a direction, deduce where you're at, and go until you cannot stop. Because remember, every day you're out there, you're getting weaker, you're not eating right, you're not drinking right, you're not sleeping right, headache, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, chigger bites, mosquito bites, blah, blah, blah. You're just going like this, right in the toilet. And after about five days, dude, you're like hamburger. When we were in Sri Lanka, I was there with Cody. We shot two episodes back to back. We were walking through like chest deep. It was nasty, dude. The nastiest water I've ever been in. Chest deep mangrove water. I got out of the water. I had 220 leech bites from my waist down. They, count. I'm like, what the hell? I, I said, count these. 220 leech bites. And just like anything, man, life is full of open and closed doors. And I chose to walk through that door. I did it. Actually, I shot more episodes than anyone else on the entire Show history. Um, I think I shot forty-one or forty-two. I can't remember, but because then after Matt and I left, then they brought in two more guys, and then two more guys, and then the show just went like right the toilet. Because Matt and I had really good chemistry, and it showed. And I was only half of that equation. There were two people on the show. But yeah, there were some dicey moments too. Let me tell you, shows like that are—they're dangerous to shoot, bro. Hmm. No lie. Like I was in Africa, got charged by an elephant. Lions around. Matter of fact, Cody and I floated right by a hippo pod. I don't know, twenty feet away from us. We we're in this dugout macaw, basically a tree. The water is about that far from going over the edge of it. And we—he's trying to paddle, and the river's just take us. And it, we literally floated right by a pod of hippos. It's dangerous. It was a dangerous. It ain't like shooting some show in a soundstage. You're out in the environment. Like when we were in Wyoming, the episode that had, it was Matt and I, and it was on top of a mountain and it was a broken down snowmobile. And we plagiarized it. You don't know this, but I was sick as a dog when we got there and I almost couldn't even film it. I was like, I'll try to do the best I can, but I was really sick. But it was like 35 below zero without the chin- windchill factor. It was, dude, It hurt. you literally could take a glass of water. I always wanted to do it and throw it up in the air and just go Poof, You know what I mean? It would just turn into ice snow. That is dangerous cold. When you're like, oh, it's 10 degrees or one degree, it was minus 35 without the wind chill factor.
0: Yeah, there were a lot with the extremes. I remember you guys being left on the top of the mountain trying to hike down once, and then there was one with Matt Graham with the, where he had the, snowmobile shoes that he made yep. out of the skids and stuff like that. Do you have a preference of an environment to be in? Would you rather be wicked cold like that or in like desert heat? What's better very, for you? Very good question. So let me just tell you, and
1: again, this is my opinion. I can honestly say I've been in every climate on this planet from high altitude, like in Nepal, where Everest is to the Atacama mountains in Chile or 17,000 feet. I need to say this. Any environment we don't have a lot of resources, like the desert, man, there ain't a whole lot to work with there. And the sun's just beating it down like a dog. There's really not a lot to make shelter. You got to like dash in between shade, like Cody used to say. I think he used to call it, there was a word he used where you just dash in between the shade and you use it to regulate your body temperature. But the desert's brutal. I can't stand snow. I don't like being cold because I've had hypothermia multiple times, but I will tell you the one environment that if you were to say, hey, pick a place you got to survive, without a doubt, the jungle. And the reason being is you've got plenty of overhead cover for shade, plenty of resources, water's pretty easy to find. There's plants that collect it. If you know what you're looking for, but there's a give and take, it's hot, it's humid. You can find a lot of food. There's plenty of grubs and other things you can find if that's what you want to eat, which is disgusting, but sometimes you have to do that but the jungle a lot of resources a lot of resources and you can make things happen and when you have resources that'll get you out but there's the other side if you're in like really thick jungle like I've been in jungle that was so thick you literally had to walk and fall to push the to push the brush down get up walk fall it was that thick that will wear you now remember you're burning calories. You know, you're burning four or 5,000 calories a day and you're sweating. So, even though you have resources, you're burning. You're burning through calories like that, man. And you're smoking yourself and you're getting tired. Yeah. Jungle by far is where if you were going to drop me in the middle of nowhere, drop me in a jungle, please.
0: It's interesting. I feel like in the jungle, there's a lot of stuff that will attack you. I feel like one of the shows that you mentioned, and I think it's that same snow show where you find the mountain lion tracks. Yes. And and I know that's not the first time I was introduced to the term, but you were the one that introduced me to the term of force protection because I think on you know, a lot of those shows, you're doing something to be on the defense of someone, something attacks you. And I guess from what I could tell, Cody and Matt did not, they, they were a little bit more of integrate into the, just the environment. So I'm curious, you always brought that dimension to it. What is that just part of your just background? Was that Yeah, legit?
1: yeah. no dude, It's that's just force protection. So like in, even in gunfighting or anything, a situational awareness, you don't want to be reactive, you want to be proactive. So the last thing I would want to do is be walking around and have this mountain lion pop by, I go, can you give me five seconds <laughs> so make spear? It's too late. The, the thing with Matt and Cody is that they were just so comfortable being in nature. Like Matt, like he he looked at animals and nature and dangerous snakes as just part of nature. It just didn't rattle his cage at all because he'd been around it. and rattlesnakes and all of a sudden it just, he was very opposed to killing snakes. Me, it's food. But, but yeah, to answer your question, I was all about force protection. And that comes to my special operations background. You have to have force protection. You have to have a way to protect yourself somehow. And sometimes security for me is just speed. Like when Cody and I were mm. walking through the Kruger National Park and there's freaking elephants over here, Cape Buffalo's over here, lions over here. There ain't no fence. Security right. is speed. And speed speed of this, get out of here right now. I'm not saying run out of here, but let's go. I want to put as much distance, time and distance between that apex predator that can kill me like that as I can. So that was the whole special operations mentality. And that's what the show was about. They wanted to hang out. I'm like, no, nah, I don't think so. There's a lot of apex predators around here. I don't have a gun. I got a knife. Big deal. What's that going to do? I need a stick. But, but yeah, man, it was that yin and yang thing. It was that yin and yang thing.
0: Yeah. Now you mentioned it being a TV show. Let's be honest, right? After you eat the bugs or whatever you're doing, and I remember you smoking fish and, and, and fishing and stuff like that. Come on, they're feeding you too, man. You, you can't be out there for days on a hundred calories Remember, or
1: let me just say this. Every show on TV, it doesn't matter what it is produced. Here's what I'll say about dual survival. One, they weren't going to let us die right? We had every episode, we either had an EMT or a doctor. Not all the time a doctor, only if it was like really dangerous. Like when we were in Vietnam or no, where were we? I think it was Sri Lanka, like 30,000 people a year get bit by poisonous snakes there. Hmm. So they actually had a doctor with us the entire time in case somebody went down with a snake bite. But for example, if you've got a host on a TV show, right? And you're in the Bolivian desert, And you got to walk from point A to point B and you know, damn, there's no water and your host is going to drop dead from dehydration. They're not going to let you drop dead because you don't have a show anymore. But it's one of those things, man. It was a really cool experience. But again, one door opens, another closes, and it was a great experience.
0: I'm going to put a link to Facebook. That's where I discovered you. Super excited to see that. Now you're active on there, too. So I'm going to put links to all of that below, and hopefully people can start tapping into the resource and and the man that is Joe Teddy, because I think we've been fans for a long time, so it's just awesome to be able to see you out there and and sharing your knowledge with everyone. It's been really helpful and entertaining to me. This has been super, super awesome. Thank you so much, my man. You bet, Joe. I appreciate it. Take care my friend, stay okay. safe, and we will see you next time.